0: We're going to look at God's Word now together. This is the last, uh, the last passage of Romans. And so we're going to stand together. And let me read this out for you. Romans 16, verses 17 through 27. We'll turn there together. Romans 16, verses 17 through 27. And innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Amen. Let's take our seats.
1: Let's pray together. Lord, that is our desire that you would have glory forever. We pray, uh, Lord, that that will be true in our own lives. And we pray it will be true as we study your word now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. As uh, Eric has already indicated, it is the last in this series in Romans. And um, I've been doing a little bit of research to find out when I actually began, when we began studying it together we began on september the 8th 2000 and any ideas 13 13 2008 september the 8th 2013 i've also counted up the number of sermons we have looked at together on this book and uh, actually it was 99 and so that made me um, go to one of those websites that likes to have lots of symbolism for numbers. And apparently 99 is the symbolism according to this website. It's the symbolism for the Shekinah glory. So that's good, isn't it? Must be very meaningful. I did think I'd actually done 98, and so I thought I'd look up what 98 meant according to this website. And according to the website, 98 meant blind religious leaders. So, it was close. (laughs) Well, we've come to this last section, and um, let me just break it down for you very simply as we look at it together. So, verses 17 through to verse 23 are really continuing his greetings, but he, in the midst of these greetings, has a series of warnings of people not to include So he includes all sorts of people, he has these greetings that are meant to be an example that they are to emulate in their own fellowship, and then he has a series of warnings for people to watch out for, and then he circles back to greetings again. And then from verse 25 to 27 is this famous benediction at the end of Romans, Uh, the alert among you, will notice there is no verse 24, at least um, not in most modern translations. And um, there's a textual issue uh, around that. If you want to think a little bit more about textual matters, um, there's a um, a little paper I wrote on that that you can pick up at the back of the church or is online, the historical reliability of the New Testament, or follow up with people like F.F. Bruce and K.A. Kitchen. Uh, K.A. Kitchen for the Old Testament. So that's the basic structure anyway, 17 to 23, 25 to 27. But the question, of course, is why is Paul ending his letter in this way? And the answer is that he is not simply saying goodbye, he is issuing an urgent appeal so verse 17, I appeal to you. So there is urgency here. I've heard someone say that the definition of courage is, at the end of the day, saying, tomorrow I will try again. <laughs> and it's almost as if at the end of this letter, Paul is saying... I'm going to try one more time. I appeal to you. So really, Paul, his doctrine that he's been teaching throughout this letter, he's now saying, but there are some people who actually have a contrary teaching, and they put up obstacles, and they cause divisions, and I want you to watch out for them, and I want you to avoid them, and I appeal to you, brothers, to do so, That is to center upon the message that I have been teaching. And as we've seen, the point of his letter has been a bold reminder of the gospel of God for the sake of all nations. Romans uh, 15, 15 15-16. And uh, that gospel is the uh, gospel of God that is the righteousness of God that is from faith to faith, received by faith. It is this obedience of faith that he began at the beginning of the letter, and he's now coming back to at the end of the letter, which is not simply faith as assent to the truth, but faith as surrender, as an openness of heart to what God is doing through the gospel of Jesus Christ and surrendering to Him as your Lord and Savior. And this is the message that he's been preaching, that he has been writing to them about, and he's been doing it for this purpose, as a bold reminder of the gospel of God for the sake of all nations. He sees the church of Rome, the central church that has a huge opportunity before it to reach out to nations around and indeed must unite, Jew and Gentile, with the Jewish contingency returning to the church, unite around the gospel of God that's why he's uh, taking this moment, this time, to say, watch out. Watch out for those who have a message contrary to this doctrine and indeed avoid them. And then instead, uh, from verse um, 25 and on, strengthen, may you be strengthened by this gospel. So the gospel is not simply the ABC of the Christian faith, it's the A to Z. It is something that will strengthen you. And he wants them to be strengthened by this gospel. So, it's actually very urgent, these last few letters, these last few verses. I appeal to you, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. Now, we don't like to think of doctrine as so important as that. We like to think of doctrine as something that we can leave to one side That it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. But actually doctrine is very important. As Jesus said, the truth will set you free. And Paul's been saying over and over again that these things that I'm teaching you are of great significance. It matters that you hold on to them. It matters that you stick to them. It matters that you believe this message. The truth will set you free. It is as we receive the doctrine of God that our lives are transformed by that doctrine and fit into the shape of the message of Jesus Christ in practice. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said that those who wish to diminish Christian teaching are those who wish to diminish Christian living so if we're to be practically living out the gospel, if we're to be practically increasingly like Christ in our individual lives, and in our family lives, in our lives as a church, then we need to have this doctrine clear in our minds and indeed watch out for those who have a contrary doctrine. Now, again, we don't like that idea. We don't like the idea that uh, there may be some that are actually out to cause division, uh, Christians are such, um, want to be such kind people, and we should be kind, that we can end up being a little naive. We can end up thinking that with a spoonful of sugar, a sweet niceness, every person will always swallow the medicine of truth. Paul says, watch out for those who cause divisions and have a message contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Keep your eyes open, says Paul. Don't be naive. But then he also says uh, very um, practically, avoid them. Again, verse 17. So if you find there is someone who likes to introduce controversial topics all the time, and wherever there is a peaceful day, they will come with clouds of division, what are you to do? Well, Paul says, don't spend time with that person. Avoid them. Don't put them in leadership positions for sure. Don't talk about controversial things with them. Uh, In Titus, Paul takes the logic of this a step further. Warn a divisive person once, and after that have nothing to do with them. Paul was referring here to Matthew 18, the discipline process that can lead eventually to excommunication if there isn't repentance. This divisiveness is serious, for really what it comes out of is a contrary doctrine. If we want people to be united in the church, if we want people to have salvation, If we want people to experience true joy and freedom, then it is through this message and contrary messages are deeply damaging and will be divisive. We need to watch out. and We need to avoid those. It's very difficult for us today, isn't it? Because we are recipients of so many ideas all the time. Uh, There was a study done in... um, California, by the University of California, San Diego, that estimated that um, now, these days, Americans receive an average of 34 gigabytes of information every single day. Now, to put that in context, 34 gigabytes of information every single day is enough to completely fill up a modern laptop in one week. So we have all these ideas, all these messages swirling around, all these competing philosophies of life, these competing claims to truth. We need to watch out and center ourselves upon the truth of the gospel. What are some of these contrary Messages today that are contrary to the doctrine that Paul has been teaching. Here are a few. Salvation by relativistic pluralism. In other words, the idea today is you can believe whatever you want as long as you believe that you can believe whatever you want. And if you don't believe that, then we won't be tolerant of you well, that's the salvation message today. Our society will be saved by relativistic pluralism. It's a very prominent idea. It's contrary to the doctrine that Paul was teaching. Another very common idea today is salvation by politics. If we just get the right person in power, if we just get the right person in office, then that will be our salvation, and indeed we'll spend millions and millions and millions of dollars to make that happen. But our Saviour and our salvation is not by politics. That is a, a contrary message to the message that, that Paul is teaching and indeed that Jesus taught. He alone is our Saviour. Of course, serving, um, good people serving in politics or in any other area is wonderful, but it is not our salvation. very common idea is salvation by intellectual assent to the truth. I'm a Christian because I believe certain doctrines. I believe them. I accept them. I think that Jesus is who he claimed to be, and therefore I am saved. But Paul has been saying all along, there is this obedience of faith. Which is surrender. It is bowing before God as Lord. And not simply saying, yeah, I believe that, but now I'm going to ignore that. It is surrender. Salvation by intellectual assent. And dare I mention it today? Salvation by sports. Now, I like sports as much as the next person. In fact, if you were at my home yesterday morning, you would have discovered me watching rugby. A far better game than whatever else is happening tonight, by the way. So I'm not, you know, I, I like playing sports, I like watching sports. But consider this. A single commercial on TV tonight will cost in the region of $5.5 million, just for the airtime. A ticket to go and see tonight's event, whatever it may be, if you could get a ticket, which I presume is pretty hard to achieve, but if you could get one, a single ticket would cost on average $5,000, one ticket. Surveys have established, as far as these things can be established, that around 30% of Americans watch 5 to 10 hours of football every week. And you say, well, that's all fine, well and good, it's just a business model. I've been asking myself this question. If it is true that most of us could tell the difference and I may get the terminology wrong so you can correct me afterwards but most of us could tell the difference between a tight end and a running back does that make sense? and some could have very detailed distinctions and hugely complicated statistics of who had won what when and what the yardage was and all all that stuff But could we tell the difference and pass out the difference with any sophistication between a message of justification by faith alone and basic sacramentalism? What is our salvation? In fact, psychologists have been thinking about this. One psychologist has made the claim that in contemporary America, sports are taking the place of religion. In a paper written in 2001, this psychologist said that the similarities between sport and organized religion are um, shown by the sort of terminology that is used about both, for instance: faith. I'm a true believer. That this team will win. Faith. Ritual. You go out to the ball game and everyone knows the songs. Ritual. Sacrifice. It's going to sacrifice to win. The sacrifice. There's always, you know, Christianity is the only salvation where God sacrifices for you rather than the other way around. Sacrifice. And then, of course, celebration. Celebration. But I suspect most egregious of all false doctrines in our contemporary culture today would be the message of salvation by career. If you get to the top, then you've really made it. That will be your salvation. You get to the top and you look down you find there's a yawning chasm beneath your feet. As I say, these salvation messages demand sacrifice, and the most obvious sacrifice to this message of salvation by career is the slaughter of unborn children in our society. Now, most of these things are things that are outside the church, that they impact us and infiltrate us in various ways because of all this 34 gigabytes of information we're taking on board every single day. But there are things that are more minutiae. Yeah, more like minutiae in, contemporary, in, in church life and we don't need to recite all the different things that Christians disagree about we just need to remember that it is Christ and this gospel not in a minimalist sense but in this Romans magisterial sense majestic sense that is our central point Martin Luther put it like this the sum as in the summary, of all divine doctrine is simply Jesus Christ. Well, people who are against that have a particular tactic, verse 18, by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. I don't want to labor this too much. We want to get on to the blessing. But I do want to make this final point, which is very often those who are speaking a contrary doctrine... And have an agenda that comes out of the appetite that is not serving Jesus but a gut intention for power or control. Very often such people are brilliant communicators. Now of course you can be a brilliant communicator and speak the truth. But I always get nervous when some new guy turns up on the scene who could have tens of thousands of people just in his hand like like this, without any problem whatsoever, and constantly keep them engaged, and it almost wouldn't matter what he was saying. It's very dangerous to that individual. I think we need to pray for people who are given that kind of level of gift. And we also need to not look for the charisma of the personality, but the content of the message. I was once um, told by some dear lady after I preached that she came up to me at the end and she thanked me for the sermon. She said, with your accent, I could listen to you read the phone book, (laughs) which I wasn't quite sure how to take. And And so the next Sunday morning, I got out the phone book and said, well, let's test this proposition and began to read it. Mercifully, it wasn't the same. Because if there's any life that you receive from college church, if there's any life that you receive from this message of Romans, it is surely not because I have a nice, sophisticated British accent. For it is, we might as well all go home. And it is surely not because I'm reasonably bright and was educated in fairly good universities. And it is surely not because I can string together a sentence and maybe crack a joke if I really try and happen to be in the mood. Surely, none of those things have any significance whatsoever. Surely, the thing that matters is not any smooth talk, but the content of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, then he encourages the Christians the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Verse 20. We don't like to talk about Satan either, do we? But he is real. But spiritual victory comes about through God's power and the peace of God comes from the spiritual victory that is won at the cross. And its implications and its applications are gradually worked out in the Christian community and gradually worked out in individual Christians' lives as the gospel takes deeper and deeper root in a church and in an individual and then, as I say, in verses 21 to 23, he brings in some other greetings, as it were, to say, Look, I, I've been holding up this example of a community for your emulation as, of greeting and my dear friends and my beloved in the first part of chapter 16 that we looked at last week. But I want to warn you, not everyone's like this. And then he steps back and says, But again, let's, let's hold up, for example, this loving fellowship that I have around me. And I want to have. want you to have around you as well and you can look at these names afterwards one perhaps worth underlining is Erastus the city's director of public works probably we have good evidence from archaeological remains of this individual who was a senior official and a Christian believer and now we come to the doxology now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings. Probably the prophetic writings there is the part for the whole. There are different opinions on this, that's what I think. In other words, he's referring to all scriptures. Uh, synecdoche is as the, as the term for this r- style of rhetoric. He means scriptures Uh, like saying to someone, you've got a great pair of wheels, meaning you've got a nice car, prophetic writings, all scriptures. By the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey Him, or for the obedience of faith, the surrender to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Now, I ask myself at the end of this section what it is that we have learned. And here are some things that we have learned uh, through our series in uh, Paul's Learn to Romans. I think the first one is, it has seemed to me as I've gone through it over and over again over the years, that it is clear that the doctrine of the Reformation is biblical. I don't mean everything the Reformers did was perfect, although I don't disagree with them about anything, I do. But the basic rediscovery of the gospel is a biblical rediscovery. I think that's important to affirm this year, of any year, which is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. We've got this big event coming up, March the 17th. We've got these great preachers coming in and the Gettys coming in, and we want all of you to be there, March the 17th. And we're doing that for a number of reasons. One of them is to get together, people like Brian Loritz and Phil Reichen and Ajith Fernando, these world-class communicators to say that the biblical gospel is in accord with that Reformation, and the Reformation is not over. I think we can also say that broadly speaking, the Reformers got their interpretation of Romans correct, and I don't mean that every part of it is absolutely um, unable to be tweaked in various ways. I've done my own tweaking as I've gone through it. But I still love to read Luther's preface to the letter to the Romans. Romans. He said this, this letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It is purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's time not only to memorize it word for word. I love how he puts that. It's well worth our time not only to memorize it word for word. Not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily as though it were daily bread of the soul. The more one deals with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. I think we've learned this, that the way for a community to find unity is only through Christ. Christ. So on our fractured, fragmented, divided world, it is only as Christ is exalted that Jew and Gentile, all nations, all races, all colors, people from all nations can possibly be one in the body of Christ. I think we've learned that. I think we've learned that uh, human boasting is excluded There is no unrighteous, not even one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what that means is whether we're um, fallen short by sexual morality or by disobedience to our parents or whether we've fallen short by judgmentalism and criticism and pharisaic pride, either way, there's no boasting. And then we've learned, Romans 5, but actually there is boasting. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We are now established forever in a realm of grace and glory. There is joy. And can it be that I I should be here? Could this be? I think we've learned that the Church of God is a tool of the gospel for all nations. That is, the church is not simply a holy huddle looking after each other. We are meant to be holy and called to be holy. We are meant to look after each other, and we do. But we're gathered together for a great purpose for the wise plan of God. And this is the reminder that he's giving to the Romans, a bold reminder of the gospel of God for the sake of all nations. And I think we've learned that centering our lives on God is good for us. That God is no spoil sport. He wants what is best. Immortal honors rest on Jesus' head, my God, my portion, and my living bread. In him I live, upon him cast my care. He saves from death, destruction, and despair. He is my refuge in each deep distress, the Lord my strength, and glorious righteousness, as one Gadsby put it, or as the Gettys put it in one of the wonderful modern hymns, Oh, how good it is when the family of God dwells together in spirit and faith and unity, when the bonds of peace, of acceptance, of love are the fruits of His presence among us. And that great old hymn, looking at the kingdom purpose of the church, facing a task unfinished that drives us to our knees, A need that undiminished rebukes our slothful ease. We who rejoice to know Thee, we rejoice to know Him. We who rejoice to know Thee, renew before Thy throne the solemn pledge we owe Thee to go and make Thee known. Well, let's renew that pledge together. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank You for Your servant, the Apostle Paul. We thank you that you called him from being a persecutor to a preacher. We thank you, Lord, uh, that uh, you kept him humble before you. He was able to write, I am the chief of sinners. Lord, we know he was uh, by no means perfect, and we can pick out his inadequacies through um, various descriptions of his life and acts, and even sometimes in his personality that exudes through his letters, we can sense his humanity. And yet we are grateful, Lord, that you called him and caused him to write this letter, inspired by you through his human personality. We pray, Lord, as we prayed at the beginning, that you would help us to open our hearts to receive this gospel. And I pray very specifically this morning that if there's someone here who is trapped in sin and darkness, that this morning you would help them by your Spirit to have the obedience of faith, that they would surrender to you, that they would give up and say, Lord, I cannot do it anymore, would you do it? And, Lord, I pray for us as a church. I thank you for College Church. Thank you that we, by your grace, do center upon your gospel. We do worship you. We do have this doctrine. We thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to continue to prize you and praise you. And to take that message out to others as well.